The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Um, We are continuing our series in the book of Acts. In week one, Trevor helpfully summarized the whole book of Acts with this super long sentence, super wordy sentence, but nonetheless, it was helpful, and that sentence is going to be on the screen again, but uh, his summary was that Acts is the unfolding of of the Father's sovereign plan to send his spirit to create and commission a people to make Jesus known. Okay, that's everything the book of Acts is about. And he also uh, helpfully offered us three overarching uh, thematic elements to the book of Acts. And one of those elements we'll dive a bit deeper into tonight. And that was that Jesus is the risen and reigning king. Okay, that's what we're going to see unfold tonight. And that's the message across the book of Acts. Uh, Before we go any further, let's ask the Lord to bless this time together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you uh, just for the gathering of this people here in this building. Thank you for Greer First and their grace in allowing us to meet here. Father, I thank you for the band and everything that they do, getting here so early to prepare and lead us uh, in worship through song. Um, I just pray now as we come to worship you through your word, Father, that you prepare our hearts, uh, that you soften our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, that uh, all that I speak tonight is uh, spoken to your glory, to your honor. If anything doesn't do that, may it not be heard. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you... Uh, sanctify us by your word tonight, because your word is truth. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm from right outside of Charleston. It's right, I'm Somerville, specifically, that's where I'm from. And so every year in the fall, without doubt, between about August to uh, September, October, those are the uh, big months where hurricane season is coming through, okay? So it's like every week, it's another hurricane, the next letter out of the alphabet gets a name, all that stuff. And every uh, year, when these big hurricanes come through, without a doubt, people go into panic mode. Water's gone, toilet paper's gone, the interstates even get reversed at times, and, and it's, everybody's panicking down there, okay? And, and a couple of these hurricanes have indeed proven to been life-threatening. I knew, I knew uh, a buddy in high school, um, his poor dogs were chained up outside, and drowned. You know, some of these hurricanes have come through and have actually been life-threatening, okay? So, uh, you know, it's not to say that all of them are cat ones or anything like that, but they are a little life-threatening at times. But my dad, (laughs) I wish he was here, but my dad, without a doubt, every time, if it's a cat five coming through, he doesn't care. We are not going anywhere. That's his decision. We're not doing anything, okay? We're not going anywhere. He decides that for us, okay? And I'm still alive. I'm still here, Okay, so it's worked for us, okay? But the point here is that news of an, of an approaching life-threatening hurricane is news that demands a response, right? It's news that demands a response. Whether to leave or stay, you don't just hear that. You don't receive that passively. You don't receive that and say, okay, that doesn't affect my tomorrow. That is news that demands a response, And a lot of us here, in fact, all of us have been confronted with this type of news before, okay? Maybe not of a life-threatening hurricane, but we have all, without a doubt, been confronted with news that demands a response. Maybe this news was that you were having a baby, a surprise baby, an unexpected baby. That's good news. That's glorious news. But it's news that demands a response. You don't hear that and say, okay, we'll deal with it in nine months. Because nine months comes around, and now you've got another human being, 
Okay, this is news that demands action. It demands a response. Or perhaps the news was a bit less exciting. Perhaps this was news of a, of a life-threatening disease that either you acquired or your family member acquired. Nonetheless, it's news that demands a response. And in our passage this evening, in Acts 3, Peter is going to preach a sermon, and he's going to give three very, very specific titles to Jesus, and he's going to follow that with some news that demands a response from us. So if you will, take a look at Acts chapter 3 with me. Starting in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. We're going to pause there. Last week, Aaron preached on the healing of the lame man, and this week we pick up right where we left off. Here, Luke sets the stage for the sermon that's about to follow. Here we see that what happened last week is the context, is the setting for what we're hearing about this week. And what we see here is that the man who was just healed by Peter and John is now clinging to both Peter and John. Okay, the crowds are rushing into the temple surrounding Peter and John, and they're astounded by what happened. Okay, they can't believe what happened. And Peter, seeing the crowd, capitalizes on the moment and preaches the gospel. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Here, Peter's first point is crucial. In it, we see, as I just said, the healing that happened last week is what sets the stage for what we're going to talk about this week. Aaron made that point last week, that what happened last week is actually about what we're going to hear this week. It's actually about Jesus, and that's what Aaron helpfully said last week. But this is necessary, and this is common, this is common in the book of Acts, okay? Oftentimes, big miraculous healings set the stage for big major sermons that follow. This happened in Acts 2, okay? After the Holy Spirit descended upon the people at Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon. And in our passage, though, we see that the witnesses of this miracle made a grave mistake. They assumed that it was either the holiness or the power of Peter and John that made this man well. And Peter provides a refutation to that in verse 16. Jump down to verse 16 for a moment, if you will. Peter says, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter says, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't John, it wasn't anything we did or any of our power or anything like that, it was Jesus. It was by faith in Jesus' name and Jesus' power that this man was made well. And the question here, and this is a question I didn't think to ask, but in my, in my preparation it was a question that was brought out um, by, by various commentaries. The question here is, by whose faith exactly was it that this man was healed? Okay, because oftentimes we see in the gospel, it's the individual who needs healing who has the great faith. And, and Jesus sees that, and in response to that, he heals them. But other times we see that it's someone else's faith that brings about another person's healing. And in our text, it's actually the faith of Peter and John in the name and power of Jesus that brings about this man's healing. And herein lies an important truth, proverbial truth, that we can all take in. It's going to be on the screen. Our faith 
and Jesus' power has the potential to be the means by which God chooses to bring about miraculous healing. Okay? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not going down the prosperity track, and I'm not saying that the lack of faith in your life is the result of, uh, or, or the lack of healing, rather, in your, in your life is the result of a lack of faith. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that Scripture allows for us to believe that our faith can bring about the healing in someone else's life, should God choose to do that. And Luke, even in, in his prequel to Acts, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke even recounts a story in which this very thing happens. A, a man is brought to be healed by Jesus, and he's lowered through a roof uh, by his four friends, and Jesus acts upon the faith of his friends. And upon the faith of his friends, he makes the man well. And so that's Peter's point here. It wasn't my power, it wasn't my holiness, it wasn't Peter or John, but it was faith in Jesus. Let's look back up to verses 13 through 15. Peter says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. This is where we see the three very, very specific titles that Peter ascribes to Jesus. And we're going to unpack those here briefly. And remember, Peter is going to demand a response from us. So the first very specific title Peter gives Jesus is that Jesus is the servant of God. Jesus is the servant of God. This language of the servant of God or the servant of Yahweh, is, is, it appears sporadically throughout the Old Testament. And at times it can refer to Moses, it can refer to David, it refers to Solomon even at times. But there is one specific section in the Old Testament um, where, where, where there's mention of a servant of God and it could not possibly be any of those men. It couldn't be. And that's found in Isaiah chapters 42 through 55. And a particular interest this evening, and more than likely the passage that Peter had in mind, is found in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Let's look there together. I won't read the entire text because it's long, but I'm, I've, break, I've broken it up some and it's going to be on the screen. So let's read that together. Isaiah 52 and 53. This is what it says. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities." Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked. Although he had done no violence, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, 
and he shall bear their iniquities. And that's not the whole thing. The whole thing is glorious and beautiful. Go read it when you have time. But we see here an illustration of the servant that Peter's talking about, who he attributes to, to Christ, to Jesus. And notice Isaiah 52, 13 tells us that God's servant will be high and lifted up. He'll be exalted. And in similar fashion, Peter says that the death of Christ, the crucifixion, was the high and lifted up, exalted Christ. Also notice Isaiah 50, uh, 53 informs us that God's servant will be rejected by men. And Peter, in similar fashion, reminds us that Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders. That's who he's addressing. And he says, you rejected him. When standing before Pilate, Peter was con- or Jesus was rather condemned to die by these religious leaders. He was despised and rejected by men. And specifically, the men standing right in front of Peter. They rejected him. They despised him. Despised him. So Jesus is the servant of God. But the second title, very specific title Peter gives to Jesus is that he is the holy and righteous one. He's the holy and righteous one. This is not the first time that, that uh, Jesus has been called the holy one in Acts. If you remember Peter's sermon in Acts 2, Peter quoted Psalm 16 and he said, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. A few weeks ago, Trevor preached on this text, and he helpfully pointed out and reminded us that although David proclaimed this about himself, Peter realized that he was ultimately talking about the Christ, because David did die. He did see corruption. But Jesus is the ultimate holy one who did not die, or who resurrected from the dead, actually, and ultimately did not see corruption. The second one, the righteous one, this title again appears in the book of Acts. It comes in Acts chapter 7, right at the stoning of Stephen. And in a really awesome, beautiful picture, Stephen is standing in front of religious leaders who, are, who have condemned him to be stoned. And one of those religious leaders is Saul the Pharisee, soon to become Paul, the greatest missionary of the Christian church. And right before he is stoned, Stephen says this to these religious leaders, again, Paul being among them. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears... You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Both Peter and Stephen are making the exact same point in their two sermons. The men of Israel standing before them are guilty of betraying and killing their own long-awaited Savior, their own Messiah. And my question is, do you see Jesus this way, holy and righteous? Do you see him this way? It's easy for us to categorize the, the Godhead as a whole, yes, as holy and righteous, but oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we only think of him in categories of lowliness, gentleness, meekness, or humility. And, and th- he is those things. Praise God he's those things. Th- those things are part of what drove him to the cross. He said things like, come to me, all ye uh, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm thankful he said that. That's true. But Scripture also says he is holy and righteous. And these things are not incompatible with each other. 
And there are some within the church today who, who would say, well, it's, it's either one or the other. He's either holy, righteous, and just, or he's so full of grace, he's so full of mercy that he turns a blind eye to justice. And the fact of the matter is, Scripture says he's both. He's both. John 1, 17 is helpful here. One of my favorite verses. John 1, 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He came equipped, full of grace, full of truth. Revelation 19 as well uh, is helpful here. It's perhaps my, my favorite description of Jesus. This is a description of Jesus when he returns. Okay, so we're still awaiting this. But John writes in Revelation 19, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, from, him, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whew. Man. Do you see Jesus this way. We can't miss this. Jesus, all the while being gentle and lowly, is perfectly holy, righteous, and just. And he will return. And he's not going to come this time as a gentle, low, meek, humble servant. He's coming as a king to judge and rule and reign over you and me. That's what's coming. And we should catch Peter's irony here. The most holy or the most unholy, unrighteous, and unjust act in human history happened to the most holy, most righteous, and most just being to ever exist. People often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? My favorite response to that is, well, that only happened once, and he died on the cross. Let's keep going. Jesus is not only the servant of God, as Peter says. He's not only holy and righteous, but the final, very specific title that Peter ascribes to Jesus is that he is the author of life. The author of life. Other New Testament authors have also said this same thing. In John chapter 1, the, uh, the apostle John says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. John here is talking about the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And we find out that that word became flesh. That word is Jesus. And here he says, well, he is the one who made all things. Again, in Colossians 1, this is Paul. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things. The first time I ever actually had the realization that the same Jesus who I picture on the cross is the same 
creative being in Genesis 1, my mind was blown. It was blown. And let's think on that. Ponder for a second the beauty and the magnitude that is the creating work of Jesus. Everything good and beautiful and, and lovable and everything picture-worthy, all that is due to the good and gracious creative work of Jesus. As I said earlier, Hannah and I, we were on our honeymoon, and one of our stops was the Grand Canyon. And man, she made fun. She's been there now three times, so she knew what she was getting into. We drove up on it, and it was sunset. It was catching the canyon beautifully. We stopped, and I mean, it was like my jaw hit the ground. It, it was insane, the, the, the vastness, the beauty. It was crazy. It was insane. And I couldn't help, while we were out there looking about the Grand Canyon, I couldn't help but think, wow, the same God who created this created me, me, and you. Psalm 8 is helpful here. It captures my thoughts very well. Uh, David writes in Psalm chapter 8, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and this is Jesus, the work of Jesus' fingers, when I look at the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? I feel, David, here, I, I, I want to say, who am I when I look upon the beauty of all this? Who am I? But Scripture tells us we are the crown jewel, the glory of God's creation. We are. Now, there are a couple points of irony here I'd like to point out. First, God the Son, Jesus, the author of life, laid aside the glory due to him as creator, and entered into his creation, taking on flesh, so that you and I might share in that eternal glory with him through faith. And second, Peter makes his point for us. The men standing before Peter are not merely guilty of handing Jesus over. They're not merely guilty of, of denying him or rejecting him. No, Peter says they are guilty of killing him killing the author of life. And if we stop there, we think, how can that be? How in the world can the author of life be killed? How can that be? But Peter doesn't stop there. No, he reminds us that the author cannot stay dead and did not stay dead. And just like the lame man last week was healed by the power of God, so Jesus was raised by the power of God. And the nations may rage, okay, the peoples may plot in vain, but Christ cannot be defeated and God's sovereign plan will be accomplished. That's what we see in the resurrection. And so once again, as we have already said this evening, Peter is going to and indeed has demanded a response from us. In light of what we've talked about, Peter demands a response. Okay, if Jesus really is what Peter has said, if he really is the servant of God, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, and if he truly was killed and raised from the dead, if all that's true, we must respond. We don't receive that kind of news passively. If all of that's true, it affects tomorrow. 
This is a really, really bold message, full of bold claims. And as we can see, he addressed men of Israel. But although these claims are immediately applied to the Jewish people, to the Jewish men standing before Peter, we know that by, by uh, similar sinful nature, in fact, exact same sin nature, sin inclinations, we know that we, too, are implicated in that guilt. See, part of God's redemptive plan was to build a bridge between Jews and us lowly Gentiles. And in doing so, he's graced us with the blessings of Israel, but with that comes their faults. We take on and share in and are included in their failures and their faults, which chiefly is the, is the killing of Christ. Their guilt is ours. So what does that mean? Well, that you and I are also guilty of denying and rejecting and killing Jesus. Now remember what Isaiah 53 said? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you want that scripture applied to you, you've got to accept that it was you that put him in the cross. And again, this is bold news. It makes some really, really uncomfortable claims about you and me. Really, really uncomfortable and as we have been saying, the very nature of this news demands a response. So let's look at what the rest of the text says. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the, by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter says, there was a time at which you might have been able to plead ignorance, because a lot of this for a long time was a mystery, but now's not that time. It's been seen, we know it, it was Christ, you put him there, now's no longer the time, now you need to respond. And in verse 19 he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who, who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so what does Peter say our response should be this evening? Well, the message today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago, and it's gonna be the same until Christ returns. Repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. Repent that you would be forgiven in Christ. And what does this mean? What does repentance demand of us? It demands that you turn from your wickedness, that we turn from the sins that placed Christ on a tree and we embrace, turn to Christ and embrace his grace and salvation. Peter goes on to offer us three benefits of true repentance. I got this from a commentator 
um, named Tony Merida, so this is credit to him. But three benefits that he gives us of true repentance. Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, this is what you have received in Christ. And if you're not, if you're not a Christian, if you're an unbeliever in the room, this is what is being offered to you this evening. The first one is total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. Peter says, repent therefore that your sins may be blotted out. This means that before a holy and righteous judge, you stand blameless. You stand innocent. Why? Because your guilt was imputed into Christ and he was punished for that so that you wouldn't have to be. And again, Isaiah 53, 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Total forgiveness in Christ. Number two, spiritual refreshment. Peter says that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. This is a restoration of the beauty and the rest and the ease of life before the fall, of life in Genesis 1 and 2. The author of Hebrews talks about this as well. In Hebrews 4, he, in talking about the literal seventh-day Sabbath rest, he points to the future eternal rest to come. He says, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. From his. The author of Hebrews here tells us that our rest in the eternal kingdom, in the kingdom of God, is going to be paralleled with the rest that God took after creating. That is what awaits total forgiveness, spiritual refreshment, and the third and final one, universal restoration. Universal restoration. Peter says, again, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed to you uh, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things. I love that. What's going to get restored? Everything. All the things. It's all going to get restored. All the things. Everything the eye can see. Everything the senses can feel. And t- everything. All the things will be restored. Revelation 21.4 captures this well. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And one of the greatest scripture passages there is, Romans chapter 8, captures it so well. It's on the screen. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and me. The revealing of the sons of God. The creation is awaiting that. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
here, Paul tells us that on the heels of our resurrection is going to be the earth's resurrection. Okay, the, the earth, the creation is groaning, waiting that we would be raised. Why? Because then it, too, will be raised. The universal restoration of all the things everywhere is what awaits. And this is what's being offered to you this evening if you have not repented and are not in Christ. Total forgiveness, spiritual refreshment, and universal restoration. For all those who don't, again, this is news that demands a response. If your response is hardening of heart, turning away, and denying what we've heard this evening, for all those who don't repent, who refuse to repent in the face of a guilty verdict, Peter says, you will be destroyed for your sins. But for all those who do, your guilt, your sin was destroyed in Christ so that eternal life may be given you freely. And that is the question this evening. Have you repented? Have you repented? And if not, could you? Is this news you can believe? Did you not hear uh, what's said about you and me in this news and not think that that might make a lot of sense? Could you repent this evening? Or perhaps you're sitting here and you're thinking, there's no way, no chance, no how, I'm too far gone, I've done too much, no chance this applies to me. It sounds great, but it's got to be too good to be true. Before you get ahead of yourself, remember this news, this message of grace and salvation was preached to the men who in history and time denied, rejected, and killed Jesus. If they weren't too far gone, neither are you. The author of life doesn't extend cheap grace. It's for all, extended to all. So receive Jesus this evening. He's the servant of God who came to save. He's the holy and righteous one who offers you his holiness and his righteousness in exchange for your ugliness, your unrighteousness, your unholiness. And he's the author of life who can bring your dead heart to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you astounded by the, the beauty of your word. We come to you blown away by how true this is. That Christ is your servant, appointed from before time to bear the sins of your people so that you may extend us grace and forgiveness and salvation. Father, I pray this evening for those outside of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would press it upon their hearts, convict them, press it upon their conscience, Lord, to draw to you in repentance and embrace the free gift of grace and, and the beauty and glory that is offered in Christ. 
God, I speak on behalf of all those who are in Christ. I thank you. Thank you for your wonderful grace. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. I pray that you would continue this work in us until the end. Father, I'm so thankful you give us in your word a glimpse of what's to come, a glimpse of the universal restoration that's to come where there's no tear, no pain, no death, and there's all glory and beauty and honor. And that you share that with us. I'm thankful that you, you let us know what's coming. My prayer is again that you would give us saints the strength to persevere to the end. May Greer Station, soon to be Ridgewood, persevere to the end. We ask this in your name. Amen.